turn to Colossians chapter 1. We will look at uh, verses 15 through verse 20 today. If you're visiting with us and you have a child in that age 4 to 5th grade range, if you want to go with them, it's totally understood. If you want to go with them to Children's Church and check it out and make sure they go to where we're taking them and make sure they get to where they're supposed to go, we understand that. So uh, uh, you may want to stay over there. You may enjoy that more the Jim and Don Hampton more than me. So you may want to just stay over there, probably more exciting. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We enter really today to the main focus of this letter. The, the exaltation and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, not only in His person, but in His work. And part of the reason that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians was to confront the false teaching that existed with regards to who Christ is and with regards to His work. They were attacking the sufficiency of His work, the necessity of His work, the, the completeness. We, we saw all of that as we introduced ourselves to the book. And, and really, if, if, we're, if we're honest, what, what Paul is doing today in Colossians is, is, is it's so rich and so needed for the Colossians, but it's so rich and needed for us today. Because if we're going to withstand the attacks, if we're going to withstand falling prey to the deception of the world, to the, to the lies of other religions, to the, to the lies of this world, we need to understand the truth. And as we've seen over the last few weeks that Paul puts forth that his gospel is the gospel of truth. Truth involves exclusivity. Truth is exclusive. And upon this point that we look at today in verses 15 through 20, really all false belief systems, all false religions, this is where they will balk. This is one of the main areas where they will diverge from Christianity. It will be regarding the person of Jesus Christ. They will deny His deity or they will deny His true humanity. Or they will attack the sufficiency of what He's done, meaning you need to add something to it. There's, it's Christ plus something else. In many cases, it's works. We, we sat, Karen and I, go to lunch on Fridays, and um, we went to a little restaurant, and we sat down, and we're having lunch, and there was this gentleman who uh, got his food, and there was, it was a, a, a crowded restaurant. It's a small restaurant, so it doesn't take much for it to get crowded. And he sat down at the, the only place to sit down was at the, the game machine, and he literally was trying to eat his food on this top of this game. And I said, hey, come here, come sit down at the table. So he sat down with us and we started talking and, and asking him questions. And he's from a system and we talked about Christ and it's about works. It's works. Where, where we diverged was on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The personhood of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. And, and, and what Paul puts forth here is needed for the Colossians, but it's also needed for us so that we don't look for a hope, we don't look to a hope, we don't look to anything else other than Jesus Christ, that our hope would be solely found in the person 
and the work of Jesus Christ, that we don't fall trapped to add, trying to add to it, of taking away from it, that our hope would singularly be in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that it would be totally sufficient. And verses 15 through 20 of Colossians is Paul's powerful statement to the Colossians about that, the person and the work of Christ. Every single one of these verses, what Paul is declaring is the supremacy and the sufficiency and the unrivaled nature of Jesus Christ. If, if there was any confusion, if there was any wondering about Christ and His role in the world, in creation, His status in creation, His preeminence over all things, these, ver these six verses are Paul's way of clearing up all the confusion about what we believe as Christians regarding Jesus Christ. His authority... Again, one of, the, one of the issues that the Colossians dealt with is they were being drawn into worshiping angels. And Paul is going to make it very clear. Who do you think created those angels? Who was there? Christ is superior to angels. We don't worship angels. Why? Because we have Christ. And, and what he's going to say in verses 15 through 20, he's going to highlight several characteristics that qualify Jesus Christ to, the, to be the preeminent one supreme over all things. And that's what I want us to see today. I pray that as we walk out of here, I mean, I realize that I preach too long regularly. This could have been a really, really, really long sermon. I mean, longer than normal. If, if you knew, I mean, that's the challenge with, with preaching is there's so many good things sometimes fall on the threshing floor. I mean, this, this passage is so rich, and yet we'll see this passage has been so abused by false religions by adding things to it to support their presumption about Jesus Christ instead of just simply allowing the text to speak for itself. And I want us to walk out of here today with a supremely high view of Jesus Christ. With a supreme satisfaction in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That we would have a higher view, even a higher love for God and His redemption through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That we would worship. That we would worship Christ in a fresh new way. And that worship, you say, it's not just what we do here. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I, I, I beg you, I implore you, I urge you, I beseech you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual service of worship. Not to be transformed any longer to the ways of this world, but to be transformed. Not to be conformed, rather, but to be transformed. By how? By the renewing of your mind. That you be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let, I pray that these words would renew our minds. I pray that these words would transform our minds, that they would consume our minds about the great Savior that we have, the unrivaled Savior. And so you'll see on your handout again, drilling it down, down to one point. If, if, you, if you don't hear anything else, walk out of here with this truth this morning. Jesus Christ is supreme. He's supreme. 
He's supreme in his revelation of God. He's supreme in his rule over all creation. And he is the only one that God has made a way to reconcile his creation back to himself. He's the only one. We, we saw that in verses 13 or 14 that, again, concluded Paul's prayer over the Colossians and for the Colossians. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God did that through Christ. In whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul immediately goes in to this passage exalting Jesus Christ. These, these very specific, these very powerful truths about Jesus Christ. And I want to do my best to unpack them for us today. Again, that we would see the supremacy and the unrivaled nature of Jesus Christ, that we would be so satisfied in Christ that this world would have nothing to offer us, that we'd be so satisfied in Christ. Look, look at verse 15 as we start. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And here's the key verse of Colossians. He is the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything preeminence for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross through him i say whether on things on earth or things in heaven the first the first truth that paul puts forth here in verse 15 is you'll see him on your handout jesus christ is the image of the invisible god Paul begins this portrayal of the supremacy and the unrivaled nature of Christ by asserting that Christ is nothing less than the exact and unique image of the invisible God. The word image here in, in the Greek, it, it has really a threefold understanding. It, it means representation. He represents God accurately. It, it means manifestation. He reveals God accurately. It also means likeness. They're, they're of the same, same essence. To see what God is like, here's, here's what Paul is saying. Look at Christ. John him, Jesus himself made that very statement. If we were to go to John 14, 9, in, in a very powerful passage talking about he's leaving and his disciples are, are frantic, he says, have I not been with you so long that you, that you yet have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus makes it very clear, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The same truth of, uh, exists in John 1. He, he, it says, he was, the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You go to John 1.14, same thing. In John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time except Him who has revealed Him. Jesus Christ reveals the Father. 
If you go to Hebrews 1, in the beginning God spoke through many portions in many ways, but today He has spoken through Jesus Christ. And it says He is the exact representation of the Father. And you see it there on your handout. The very nature and character of God has been perfectly revealed in Christ. And that which is invisible has become visible. Christ reveals God. And that is Paul's whole point. That, that the revelation needs nothing else added to it. It doesn't need another source. It doesn't need another means. That revelation has been recorded in this word. That's why we make priority of this word. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for the, the disciples and those apostles there, but he also prays for you and I, and he says that they would believe in your, the, your word, apostles. We believe in the word. This word is central, it's essential. That's why we make a big deal of this word. That's why we preach only this word. Jesus Christ was the word. He is the word. He revealed the word. They recorded the word. We believe in the word. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He goes on in verse 15 and he says, the firstborn of all creation. What he's saying there is that Jesus is sovereign over all creation. And this is a big deal. Listen carefully because that word firstborn, we need to understand in our, in our, when we're reading that, we think of one thing, but in the Greek it means something very different. That word firstborn there, sport, it, it points to status. It points to preeminence. It points that he's sovereign, that he's supreme. The whole point of this passage is to show Christ's superiority over all things. When we get to verse 16, we're going to see that he, specifically, he's the creator of all. We're going to get to verse 17, he upholds all creation. Again, the superiority, the sufficiency of Christ. And, and this, this is a big point of division between what we believe and what other religions believe. Jehovah's Witness, for instance, they will alter this passage and they will put the word other in this passage six times to show that Christ is not, was, was originally created and then he created all other things. That's not what this passage says. The problem is, is they do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and therefore they need to alter the passages that speak to the deity of Jesus Christ, the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, the eternality of Christ, so they alter the passage. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's eternal. You can't be the creator of all things if you yourself need to be created. And again, I, I'm, not try, I, I, I'm not trying to... You, you may have family members that are, that are Jehovah's Witnesses. You may have friends. I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm simply equipping you to understand why we believe what we believe and why it's different. One, one cannot create himself. And they other religions will suggest that Christ created all other things after he was first created. That's not what this passage says. That's not what verse 16 says. For by him all things were created. He was before all things, he goes on to say. He, verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's sovereign. He's supreme. If Christ would have been created, 
If that's what Paul was saying here, listen, there's an entirely different Greek word for that. It's an entirely different Greek word. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that he is in status. He is preeminent. He's preeminent. He's supreme. He's sovereign. And you see on your handout, Christ was not created, but rather existed eternally before creation. And he was the agent through whom all creation was created. And thus he is the ruler over all creation. He's the ruler. He's sovereign. That's Paul's whole point. To put forth the supreme status of Christ, that he is distinguished from his creation, that he was not created. Rather, all things were created through him. That's what Paul is going to say. The problem with worshiping angels and all these other things is that you're worshiping the created rather than the creator. If you were to go to Romans 1, that's the whole point of Romans 1. They exchange the worship of that which is created. For the, they exchanged the worship of the Creator for that which had been created. He's, Christ is the Creator. All things were created through Him, we will see, and by Him, and for Him. And what Paul is saying here, in Christ being the firstborn of all creation, not only that He is the ruler and He's sovereign, He preceded the whole creation, that Christ is first in rank over all the creation. That's what He's saying. He's supreme. He's unrivaled. He's number one. And in the Old Testament, in that culture, they would have understood that a firstborn child not only had priority of birth, but had priority of dignity and superiority that went with it. Let me go back to Deuteronomy real quick, uh, if I can find it quickly. Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, I believe, explains that. Listen, verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. Preeminence. Superiority. That's what he's saying. Firstborn here is implying that Christ has priority into creation, not only in time, but he, as he was before all things, but he has sovereignty over creation in rank. He is over all things. He's ruler. And Christ is supreme, in, in, not only in his unrivaled nature, but his supreme identity. That's what he's saying. It's status. He's supreme. Look, look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. See on your handout what Paul is saying here in verse 16. Christ is the creator of all things. It's very clear. And Paul offers three overarching principles here with regards to Christ and creation. He says first that all things have been created by him. Created by Him. He also says that all things have been created through Him. Christ is the agent through which creation occurred. All things have also been created for Him. E even there, there's an entire sermon right there in that statement. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You and I were not created to be our own little gods in the sense of to, be, to rule our own world, to live for our own glory, to do our own thing. We were created for His glory. 
to bring Him glory. You and I exist to bring Him glory, to reflect His glory. And and what Paul is saying here is the all-encompassing nature of Christ's creative work. All things, all things. He mentions that twice. He says at the beginning of that verse, for by Him all things were created. At the end of the verse, all things have been created through Him and by Him. What's Paul's point? All things. He's making sure you don't miss it. He repeats it for emphasis, all things. Nothing, nothing is beyond the creative scope of Christ's work and reign. And clearly what Paul is doing is distinguishing Christ as supreme. He's eternal. He's above all. He's to have priority. And again, the conclusion here would have been specific to the Colossians in that they were falling prey to worshiping that which was created, specifically angels and other spirit beings, rather than the Creator. We'll see that over in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon, things that are a mere shadow. Let no one keep defrauding you. He goes on to say, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. No, we have Christ. He alone is to be worshipped. Don't exchange the Creator for the created. And what he's saying here in verse 16, and you'll see it on your handout, Christ alone is worthy of worship, and He is to be worshipped alone. Christ alone is worthy. All throughout Scripture, we see the picture that Christ reigns supreme. Ephesians 1.21, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, Christ is supreme. Philippians 2.11, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He's supreme. For that, Right before that, in 2, 9 and 10, for this reason God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow for those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Again, there's tremendous, there's, Christ is supreme and there's tremendous security in that believer. Nothing can separate us. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8. Why? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ is supreme. He's the ruler over all. But he also here speaks to the, that Christ possesses a unique and incomparable identity. A unique and incomparable identity and that Christ's reign encompasses all creation. Please see that. All things. Ultimately, ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That, that truth will become Perfectly clear to everyone at some point. And God in His mercy, we, we spoke, Joel and I talked to uh, the middle schooler and high schoolers Wednesday night. They, I told you they've submitted some questions and, uh, and the elders have taken Wednesdays to answer those questions. And one of those had to do with God's patience and long-suffering and, and why does it seem that the wicked are getting away with their sin. I mean, these were deep, deep questions for these middle schoolers uh, and high schoolers to put forth questions on on suffering 
questions on why does it seem that, that the ungodly are getting away with it. You know, if you go to Psalm 73, Asaph asks that same question. Until, he says in verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw their end. He was envious of unbelievers until he was reminded of God's goodness and their end. And, and, and the reality is this, God was patient with you and me. Why? To lead us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. To lead us to repentance. And, and God is patient, and we talked about the fact that, listen, I, I, can, I can explain suffering and talk about it all you want, but until, until Chris Basham gets off the throne of his life, until it ceases to be, until everything ceases to be about Chris Basham and begins to be about the glory of God, suffering will not make sense. But if my life exists for the glory of God, if my life is about the glory of God, then listen, and if he's really supreme, then he can do whatever he wants through Chris Basham to give himself glory because it will be worth it because he alone is worthy of glory. And that's what Paul is saying. He, he, is, he is a... He is over all creation. All things exist by Him, through Him, and for Him. For Him. It's not about my glory. It's not about your glory. It's about us reflecting the glory of our Creator and our Savior. And what he's saying is that only through Jesus Christ will all creation be reconciled to its creator. We'll see that in verses 18 through 20. And the goal, again, the goal of Christ's work was to offer a way for sinners who had been separated from a holy God, from their creator, to be reconciled back and to rightly deal with their sin. And Christ has not only created us initially, He's created a way for us to be reconciled back, to be recreated, as we'll see. New birth. To reconcile us back, to redeem sinners. That's the gospel of God crucifying His Son so that His creation, who was separated because of sin, could be reconciled back to Himself. He crucified His Son, who was perfectly righteous, took all of the wrath that was due sin upon Himself, We've said it before, 2 Corinthians 5, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, that we could exchange our sinfulness for Jesus Christ's righteousness. Why? Because Jesus said it very early on in his work in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's about righteousness. As sinners, we're unrighteous. It's not about being good enough. It's, you can't earn that righteousness. We, may, we saw that in Romans 9 and 10. Israel seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. They missed the righteousness that God offered through Christ. We don't get to God through works. We don't get to God through self-righteousness. We get to God through trusting in Christ and the sufficiency of His work as being righteousness on our behalf. And we're hoping by faith that that work was totally sufficient to propitiate, to satisfy God and His wrath and to make a ransom, as we saw in verses 13 and 14, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness because of sin into the kingdom of light, which is ruled by Christ. And Christ is creator. He's ruler. 
And God is redeeming creation back to himself, making a way for sinners to be redeemed back, to be reconciled back to their creator. And Christ alone is that means. He alone is to be worshipped. Go to verse 17. He continues. He says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, D, Jesus Christ is before all things, and he holds, that should be holds, not, there should be an S there, all things together. We have a habit here of not putting S's on our words. If you look at that sign back there, Lo, I am with you always. We, we don't like S's. This verse, again, what he's saying here in verse 17, this verse ties directly with what we just saw in verse 16. What Paul is saying here, he clearly puts forth the truth of Christ's preexistence. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. Again, naturally, the Creator exists before the creation, He's eternal. Again, John 1 makes this clear. Hebrews 1 makes this clear. We showed that. Christ is eternal. He is equal to the Father. Listen, if you go to in John 5, Jesus' own claim of being equal to the Father, that's what got him killed. John 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. This was not something that, that, that other people pressed upon Jesus. It wasn't a claim that other people made about Jesus. That's a claim that Jesus Christ made himself, that he was equal to the Father. He goes on in verse 23. For, go to verse 22 of John 5. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The whole of the Bible, the testimony of the Bible, is that Jesus Christ is equal to the Father. He is preexistent. There's never been a time where he wasn't. You go all the way back to Genesis 1. What does it say? Let us make man in our image. The Trinity has always been there. Try explaining that to your kid, too, when they ask the question, where did God come from? Well, he's always been there. What? Yeah, exactly. What? But listen, but think about that. Just think that. This is in my notes. This is why these sermons get long. But think about this. If God was created, then we're worshiping the wrong God. We need to be worshiping the one that created God. So if what we believe is true, at some point there's an eternal, pre-existing trinity that exists. And that's what the Bible puts forth. And all things are sourced in Him. And what we see here is not only is Christ supreme in rank, but He is supreme in that He sustains all things. He says, and in Him all things hold together. What this teaches you and I is this. You and I owe our continued existence to Christ. All the natural laws, all the, all the gravity, all these other things that make life livable, that sustain life. Guess who sustains those? Christ. He holds all things together. If we were to go to Hebrews 1.3, it says he sustains all things by the power of his 
word. Not only did he create everything by the power of his word, he sustains everything by the power of his word. Every, listen, every moment of every day, you know who holds everything together? Not Chris Basham. Jesus. Holds all things together. Sustains all things. Even here, this blows the idea out of the water that God kind of wound up, the, wound up the, the, the little spinner thing and then just sent it off, just wound up the world, sent it on its way, and then stepped back and says, whatever happens, happens. That's not what this says. There's a sovereign God who is in totally in control at all times and in Him, in Christ, holds all things together. He is intimately involved every day with His creation. Intimately involved every day. All the laws by which this world are ordered, you know what they're? They're an expression of the greatness of the sun. The law of gravity, all these laws that the universe hangs on. Listen, not only are there scientific laws, but they're held together by the divine one, Jesus Christ. A crea they're created by a loving father to sustain his creation to his glory. And, and again, that's clearly what Paul is saying here. He's repeating it. He's simply using all of these statements in all these different ways to show one thing, the supremacy of Christ, the unrivaled nature of Christ. Why does Christ rightly deserve to have preeminence in your life and in my life and in all the world because of this right here and so much more? Because of this. Christ is supreme. And in every, listen, in every, in every place in Scripture where you see this phrase, it points to rank, it points to supremacy. In, in James 5, verse 12, in 1 Peter 4, 4 uh, 8, it literally says, above all, that Christ is above all. He's above all. He's supreme. Totally sufficient. Totally unrivaled. And that's his whole point. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have what? First place in everything. E on your handout. Jesus Christ is the head of the body of Christ. This is one of those sermons where you can fill out the fill-ins ahead of time. You don't even need me. They're right there. I know some of you like to guess and see how many you can get right on the front end. You should get a high score in this sermon. A high score, because they're right here in the text. The, the Greek there, he is the head of the body. In the Greek, it literally reads, he and no other is the head of the body. And that right there, think about that right there. That excludes, again, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to pick on other religions or anything else. I'm, I'm simply saying any, any religion or anything that puts a man or someone else as head of the church, they are deviated from Scripture. I'm not the head of this church. The Pope is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church. Period. I, don't, I, I take my cues from this word. I take my cues from Christ. I'm simply an under-shepherd. My, my word is not infallible. My word is not authoritative except to the point where I base my word on the authoritative word of the word. I derive my authority from here. Period. 
I'm taking my cues from Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. Again, why would he be? He is supreme and unrivaled. He's the head. We, we have no power apart from Christ. The, at, just like the body is powerless without a head, so the church is powerless without Christ. We take our cues from Christ. And you see on your handout, every word and action of the church is to be governed and governed and by directed, governed and directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We take our cues from the word, from Christ. A natural conclusion, you see there, Jesus must therefore be the one who directs and empowers the church. And again, this is, again, truth is exclusive. You and I are in an exclusive relationship as believers. If you're a believer, you're in an exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ. We preach an exclusive gospel, Jesus Christ. Christ alone is the source of salvation. And yet, and yet, listen, you and I as believers hold a crucial position in the redemptive plan of God. That's, that, and, and it's to proclaim the gospel. Our role is to proclaim the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come will they, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In, in a very direct context, Paul was speaking to Timothy. And yet, in Romans 14, he gives that same charge to all believers to preach the gospel. To take the gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers. Because again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. You see the power of the word? If you would go to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, Paul speaks to himself as being an ambassador on behalf of Christ. And he says, as an ambassador on behalf of Christ, he says, I beg you, be reconciled to God. That, that's, our, that's our ministry, our role, our, our, our reason for really continued existence here on this earth is to beg those who are not in Christ to get in Christ through the work of Christ. To be reconciled to their creator. And that reconciliation only happens through the gospel. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of the gospel. And there's so much more there even to, to Jesus being the promised king. The one that Israel always looked for. And Jesus shows up and fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one that they had waited for. He's the one that had been promised. And he is the one through whom reconciliation can be made between God and his creation. And you and I are the means, if you will, that God uses to proclaim the gospel. To preach the gospel in season and out of season. If, if we were to go to 1 Peter 2, 9, it says that we're a royal priesthood. And it goes on to say, why do we exist? To proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's why we exist. 
to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. We're to be about the one who sits on the throne of the kingdom of God. And it's not you and I. We're ambassadors. We're soldiers. On behalf of Christ. And what that tells us, what Paul is saying here, is, is, is the implications are enormous. And you see them on your handout. This truth carries the idea of privilege. It is a privilege of the church to be the instrument through which Christ works. That's a privilege. To call yourself an ambassador on behalf of Christ, to be an ambassador on behalf of God, to, to herald a message on behalf of a king, tremendous privilege. But that also carries the idea of warning. If we neglect our purpose, if we neglect our mission, If we were to go to Hebrews 2, Paul talks about seeing that those in the Old Testament received, received discipline and punishment for neglecting what they had received. He says, how much severer punishment will we receive if we neglect so great a salvation? 1 Corinthians 4 says, it is required of a steward to be found faithful. There's coming a day, believer, when you and I, 1 Corinthians 3, are going to give an account as believers on how we stewarded the resources and the ministry and the salvation that God gave us. Don't neglect it. Don't bury it. Proclaim it. Tell the world about it, unashamedly. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes First for the Jew, then for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God has been manifested. For in Jesus Christ the righteousness of God has been manifested. How are sinners declared righteous through Christ? Through Christ. Our job, our responsibility as believers is to make much of our king. It's to carry his message to the world. And again, we exist for the glory of God, not vice versa. He doesn't exist to our glory. We exist to His glory. He doesn't exist to do our bidding. We exist to do His bidding. And that's really, again, we started with Romans 12. That's, that's our spiritual form of worship, to give ourselves to the gospel which we've been reconciled to God through, to offer our lives to that King. And the, really, he, the pinnacle is verse 18, that Jesus Christ is to have first place in everything. In everything. Same thing Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God through your bodies. For you are the temple of of the living God. That word temple there is the same word naos that was used in the Old Testament for the Holy of Holies. Only, only the priest entered the Holy of Holies and that's where he would offer sacrifice for a sinful people. Literally, you and I are the dwelling place of God. We're the temple. We exist to proclaim His excellencies. 
But Christ is to have first place in everything in our lives. The, the statement there, the firstborn from the dead, again, explains why Christ is the origin and the life of the church. It, it, firstborn here, again, it talks about supremacy. Jesus Christ is the first one to break the hold of death in a, in a glorified body by virtue of the resurrection. And His resurrection promises all believers their resurrection. It's a promise. And between that first creation in Genesis 1, man fell into sin. They chose, man chose Adam and Eve. They chose to live according to their own wisdom, their own ways over God's. They sinned. And Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has offered, in a sense, a new creation. John 3, a new birth. Into God's family. Reconciled to God. But death, the, death, the penalty, the payment of sin had to be conquered. And Jesus Christ conquered death. His resurrection was, is the, that's why the resurrection again is the heart of our message. Death has been conquered through Christ. Through faith in the work of Christ, you and I as sinners can be declared righteous, forgiven, brought back, reconciled to God our Creator. But our king. And, and in Genesis 49.3, you see two terms there. You see the two terms. You see firstborn and you see beginning. And they appear together. And literally what it's pointing to is the founder of a people. Do you see what he's saying here? Christ is the founder, in a sense, of a new people, the church. He's the founder. He's the head. It's through his resurrection. That's why Paul makes such a big deal in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with regards to the resurrection. Listen to what he says in, in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Again, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Again, the, the importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. Paul says in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who, are, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are men of most to be pitied if He has not been raised from the dead. And yet He's been raised from the dead. Therefore, we're not to be pitied. And His resurrection promises Every other believer's resurrection. That's the promise. And again, his supremacy, what he's saying here is his supremacy is universal. First place. Not just for the church, but all the world. Je Jesus is not one of many ways. He is the way. He is the only way that God made for His creation to be reconciled back to Himself. And the Bible, again, he's, the Bible states that emphatically, that Jesus is the only way that you can be reconciled. He is the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. But Paul goes on and builds as if that weren't enough. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of, 
to dwell in him. Christ is the fullness of deity, saving grace, and power. That's what he's saying in verse 19. I think what he's saying here, he's saying in, in Colossians 2, 8 and 9, he will, Paul will make the statement that in Christ the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I think what Paul is saying here specific to Christ is that it was God's pleasure to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to himself through Christ. The fullness, the perfection, the authenticity, everything you need to be reconciled to God is in Christ Jesus. I think that's what Paul is saying there. And it was the Father's, think about that, it was the Father's good pleasure to do that in His Son. Again, the unrivaled supreme nature of Christ, that, that Christ in Christ resides the fullness of God's saving grace and provision for salvation. He's sufficient. That's what he's saying here. Everything we need to be saved, to be redeemed, to be declared righteous, Christ, God was fully satisfied, fully propitiated by the death of Christ. He was satisfied. And the resurrection was that receipt, if you will, that, look, I accept the payment. And, and Christ is exalted and glorified and supreme in that he, again, he alone is able to reconcile man back to God. And he's sufficient, supreme, unrivaled. And where, again, that comes very, very into play is in Colossians, they were arguing that he was not. That you needed to not drink this, and you need to eat this, and you need to celebrate this, and you need to do this, and you need to worship. No, Christ is enough. And you see it on your handout. Christ's work is totally sufficient. Totally sufficient. Christ alone offers reconciliation. And that takes us to verse 20, which is the final description of the supremacy of Christ. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Again, the purpose of God's fullness dwelling in Christ was to make reconciliation possible. To make a way for sinful creation to be reconciled back to their creator. And the word reconciliation... If you were to look that word up, I love this. The word literally means to cause to be friendly again. Think about that. Because Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 of chapter 5 says that we were enemies, that there was hostility between God and man. And think about that. Where there once was hostility, Jesus Christ has brought friendship back into the picture. That's what reconcile means, to make friendly again. I mean, think about that picture of the gospel, that you, again, and God now, though you're a sinner, but you've been declared righteous through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, through trusting in that, you now have been made friends again with God. But only through the work of Christ. And what he's saying here is that you can totally and forever be reconciled to God through Christ. And, and again, it's, it's, it's an unlimited, it's, it's, all, it's all means here, it's all scope here of your life. That you now through Christ have peace with God. See Romans 5.1. 
See Romans 8.1, but now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second before you got saved, what was there between you and God? Condemnation. And the second you got saved, for there is now, meaning there once was, but now in Christ there is no condemnation. Where death reigned over your life, eternal life now reigns. Only through Christ. And, and the beauty here, the beauty here in verse 20, and you see it on your handout, that again, even though we were the guilty party, usually, usually the guilty party is the one whom you would expect to initiate reconciliation. To go to somebody and say, you know what, hey, I sinned against you, I messed up, I, forgive me. And yet here we see the beauty of what the Bible teaches is that, is that, is that it was God himself who initiated the reconciliation. God initiated the reconciliation. I mean, what a beautiful picture of, of God. What an unrivaled picture of the God of this Bible versus the God of other, all other so-called religions who, who demand that man work and work and work and work and work and work and try to hope that they make, an, they, they make it up enough, that they appease Him enough to, to, to be good enough to be saved. And yet the God of this Bible, the one true God, says, I'm going to take the initiative to do everything necessary for man to be reconciled to me if they will trust in Jesus Christ for their, for their righteousness. God initiated that. Total unrivaled, total supreme view when you hold out Jesus Christ and what he has done to all other religions. God taking the initiative to bring sinners back. Again, this is Jesus leaving the 99 to go find the one. Initiation. Initiative. And, and what he shows here is that Christ, you'll see it on your handout, reconciles all things, whether on earth or heaven. It points to the completeness. Even in Romans 8, it says that creation, the earth groans, waiting for their redemption. Because there's coming a day where he's going to renovate that, the earth as well. You and I are going to get our glorified bodies, and the earth is going to be renovated back to its Edenic state, and it won't have all this stuff that even the earth groans and suffers through our sin. And this is not teaching universalism, meaning that everyone's going to be saved. It's talking about the completeness. Again, universalist sacrifice, they are, they're individuals that believe that ultimately God's going to save everybody and they focus on God's love. The problem is this. Universalists will sacrifice God's righteousness and holiness at the altar of His love and mercy. Yet God in His, in His holiness has to judge sin. He has to deal with sin. And part of God's character can't bypass or ignore another. For all those who trust in Christ for their righteousness, complete salvation. Sufficient salvation. Reconciliation to God. Jesus Christ is unrivaled. He is supreme. He's beyond compare, not only in His person, as Paul puts forth, but in His work. And what this teaches us is that Christ is enough. He is enough. He is supreme. He is unique. But He's enough. And the response to this, the response to this is worship. 
The response is giving of our lives to the glory of the one who gave his life for us. It's making much of this gospel and the one who authored this gospel through which we've been saved. In two weeks, we're going to Costa Rica to, do, to proclaim that. A month or two after that, we're going to Lord Willing to the DR to proclaim that. But listen, you're going to leave here in a little while and you're going to go back to neighborhoods and businesses and schools and, and all these places. Why? To proclaim that. That's the message. You and I are ambassadors on behalf of this great and awesome, supreme, unrivaled God. That is a privilege, but it is a responsibility to make much of Him. To lose our life for His glory that we would gain our life for all eternity.